Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about From the Tideless Sea, Part 1, by William Hope Hodgson. This story was originally published in 1906, though the version that we read is a revision that was published in 1914. And it's the version you get if you have the Nightshade Press series that collects all of Hodgson's Hodgson stories. This one is volume one. Uh, the title of the volume is The Boats of Glen Carrig and Other Nautical Adventures. Uh, so, I mean, I think when, when I started uh, reading this, I was hoping it wasn't going to be another girl with a gray eyes <laughs> situation. <laughs> so uh, this, this story does have some real weird fiction elements and some incredible nautical adventure elements as well. Yeah, I think we're going to be staying away from those perilous romance stories now that we know that the the, the romance is really the word that needs to be emphasized there and not the uh, <laughs> not the perilousness. Well, this episode is something of a, a milestone for us. When we started podcasting two years ago, we could walk to each other's uh, homes. But uh, I have moved very recently. And so that means that we are no longer recording in the same room for the, the first time ever. And of course, that has also meant that we needed new recording equipment. And that is something that we were only able to do because of our Patreon supporters. And so I just wanted to take a moment here at the top of the show and say thank you for making that possible. Thank you so much for keeping us on the air, keeping us talking about stories every week. And the generosity of our supporters has made us continuing to do this podcast possible, which is really, I think, the most we could have hoped for uh, when we got this thing started, knowing that uh, life was going to throw some changes at us along the way. Yeah, and and indeed it has. But this is a real a real constant in my life and uh, something that brings me great joy to do. So I'm glad that we get to get to keep doing it. So Brandon, this is, I think, now our fourth William Hope Hodgson story, including the perilous romance that we read. How did you feel about this one? How did, just maybe before we even get into the recap, how did this one stack up to the others? Well, I really loved it. And I was also pretty troubled by it the more I thought about the way the story ends. I think this is an incredible story. There are some real master strokes of writing and craft and plotting in here. And I the more I read Hodgson, the more I like him. I'm so glad that through this podcast, I've been able to be introduced to this great writer that I really hadn't read before. This story in particular is a great nautical adventure. The prose is really good. He's got some great uh, technique on display. And he hovers in this weird fiction ter- territory. And one thing we'll talk about in the discussion is sort of how uh, William Hope Hodgson creates the whole concept of a weird fiction mythos in some ways in this story and his Sargasso Sea story. So we'll be talking about that, but I I really liked it. What what did you think of this, Glenn? Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. I mean, I I really am quite excited by these nautical adventure stories. I didn't know that was something that was kind of missing in my life. And I think there is something to the authenticity with which Hodgson writes these stories and, and builds up the world of his ship and builds up the world of the sea around it because he himself was actually a sailor on uh, you know, late 19th, early 20th century sailing vessels. And you can tell. Oh, yeah, you can absolutely tell. And so if this introduction hasn't convinced people to hit pause on the podcast and read the story real quick before we get going, then I don't know what will. So we're just going to keep going ahead with the episode. Glenn, take us away. 
Right. So as we've said, this is another of Hodgson's nautical adventure stories. And this is the first story in a story cycle that's called the Sargasso Sea Stories. And so, uh, you know, as you can imagine, we will get to the Sargasso Sea before too long here. And this story opens with action. We begin immediately with the inciting incident. There is no preamble to the story like we had last time with Poe. And that incident is that the captain of the ship that we are on has spotted another ship. It's a, a ship that is adrift and clearly not in good shape. And it seems to have been adrift for a long time. The The paint is faded, but still, through their telescope, they can make out a few of the letters in its name, H-M-E-B. And they get closer to this derelict, and they discover a black cylindrical case that's wrapped in a bundle of canvas, which was itself enclosed in an oilskin to protect it from the water. And obviously, this is ominous, right? We're immediately wondering what is inside this. And they open it up and they find a manuscript entitled The Losing of the Homebird. And the captain knows all about this ship. The homebird was lost a long time ago, back in his youth, back in 1873. And so now at this point, we realize that actually all of this, all of this inciting incident has been really a frame story and that the story proper, the actual story from the Tideless Sea is contained in this manuscript that they found. Yeah, this is kind of classic weird fiction stuff. You know, it's the finding of the lost manuscript that unlocks some weird sort of secrets of the world to you in some way. But I really love what Hodgson is doing with this frame story, though we'll talk about why there's a frame story at all and why not just kick this whole thing off with the manuscript that we're going to be treated to in just a moment. But in this frame story, there's so much, there's so many small details that let us know immediately, if we didn't know already, that this is a just a purely nautical yarn. We have jargon and dialect of the sailors, and it's fantastic. The captain, the, although he's nearly illiterate, we find out, really displays a different sort of intelligence. His almost encyclopedic knowledge of ships that were lost and never came home, um, and the way he keeps track of things in his mind, though he can't write things down or read, is a great way that Hodgson shows that these different sorts of intelligence interact with each other on these boats, that these different classes of people are working together to achieve uh, the common goal of running the ship. And I think it's just a masterclass in an opening narrative uh, with this frame. And we see we see more examples of the way Hodgson, who has clearly been on boats with people who maybe don't have the classic academic intelligence skill set, display other sorts of intelligence. And I just think it's fantastic. And I love the way he puts it right into the frame of the opening of the story. That's a really great catch, because I think that there are actually some class things going on in the story that we're going to get in the manuscript that I, I had noticed, but wasn't sure why they were there, what the, the point of that as a plot device was. But now that you've pointed out this contrasting bit of it, uh, I think there might be some meat on the bone there. So that's something that we can uh, we can get to when we get to or perhaps talk about in the discussion. So let's get into the, the manuscript story, which opens with these lines. It is Christmas Eve. Two years ago today, we became lost to the world. Two years. It seems like 20 since I had my last Christmas in England. Now, I suppose we are already forgotten, and this ship is but one more among the missing. My God, to think upon our loneliness gives me a choking feeling, a tightness across the chest. 
And the narrator goes on to explain that they are stuck in the Sargasso Sea, what he calls the Tideless Sea of the North Atlantic. And he sums this up, I think, all very nicely, very beautifully with this line. From the stump of our mizzen mast, one may see, spread out to the far horizon, an interminable waste of weed, a treacherous, silent vastitude of slime and hideousness. Just an amazing, amazing visceral line there. And he also describes this as a world of desolation, and he marvels at how much loneliness there can be in the world. And he says that if, if they could sail, they would be able to go a hundred miles, and still they would be lost. But e- even still, they do have a companion of sorts, uh, a great, shapeless, discolored mass seven or eight miles away. It's the hull of a long-lost vessel. But in the 100 or possibly even 200 years that it's been trapped here, it's had all sorts of barnacles and such grow on it, so that now it is really just kind of a, a floating island. And I love this setup, right? The, the mood of this is just superb. And the descriptive writing is so evocative of both the place itself and also the, the emotional response that the narrator has to that place and to this situation. Uh, and I suppose also we should talk a little bit about the Sargasso Sea as well before we get too much further into this story. Yeah, it is a real place, in fact. Uh, it, it, it's off the coast of North America, and it's a kind of place where four major currents uh, come together, and it's named for the seaweed that is kind of present in those still waters. It is kind of a place where, where there could be danger of becoming becalmed, and uh, the type of seaweed is called sargassum, and so that's why it's called the Sargasso Sea, but... It's nothing like this. Uh, it's not just an, uh, it's not just a kind of a weird uh, oceanic marsh of weeds and slime. But it is a real place and and Hodgson is maybe relying here on some some sailor type tall tales that that people tell across boats and things like that as he's thinking about creating this setting. Right, this is a, a real staple of pop culture, a real staple of literature, of adventure literature, that there's this bit in the middle of the North Atlantic that you, you don't want to go into because you'll get trapped. It's it's We also have the Bermuda Triangle, which is actually maybe not that far away, right? So, uh, but, this, but this image, this idea of the Sargasso Sea, as you say, is totally made up. I, I don't actually know who originated this idea, but it is totally caught on such that I, certainly, I made it well into adulthood, assuming that this was literally the way that the Sargasso Sea was, that it really was this big marsh in the middle of the ocean and that it had you know monsters and stuff in it, that it was a really dangerous place, which is just totally not true. It's just an interesting uh, physical phenomenon on the, the planet. There are a few things I want to point out in, in this kind of opening section as well. First of all, I just want to say I, I also love the setup for the tale of the home bird and the person who's writing it. I think it's fantastic. And as we said, the narrator has been on the boat for two years and he is becalmed in this ocean of weed and slime and kind of can't get through it. There's no way out. And there's a lot of odd things going on. As you said, there's that odd ship in the distance, Glenn. But there are other questions that really don't occur to you until you after until after you finish the story. Like, who is the we? Uh, at this point in reading it, you just assume there's some crew left alive. And we're going to discover whether or not that's the case. And we're going to learn what this odd superstructure sh- on the strange ship is as well. But one thing that really jumped out at me is how old the narrator believes this ship to be. He thinks it's been stranded in the 
in the Sargasso Sea for a hundred or two hundred years, and when we get to the end of the story, uh, that is just the most tragic detail to me in in this whole narrative. Right. So at this point, we get some backstory to how they've gotten trapped here. So uh, this is going to be pretty exciting. So our, our narrator, his name is Phillips, by the way, though, of course, we're not going to learn that for quite a while in the, the tradition of these types of stories. So Phillips was a passenger aboard the Homebird. He's not crew. And not long into their voyage, the ship encounters some rough weather, though that's a mild way to put it. We get several pages describing a truly epic storm. And I was really reminded here of the descriptions of storms that we we had in the Karnaki story that we did as well. And here in this one, we get a wall of dark clouds. We get winds so fierce that they break the masts. There's a, a maelstrom and the ship even rolls over. And in all of this, the, the captain is seriously injured and most of the crew are, are, are lost. And this goes on for days. And when it finally ends, it is only because the storm has driven them into the Sargasso Sea, which is strewn with the Sargassum seaweed. And of course, the ship gets stuck in this seaweed. And, and even though they can see the clear open ocean really only a half mile away, it, it doesn't matter. They are trapped. They are stuck here. But this does not stop the survivors from trying to get out, right? You have to try in this situation. But the, the captain is too injured to lead these efforts. And so he puts Phillips in charge. And presumably here, this is because he is actually a member of the English upper class, or at least of the English gentry. And so he's more educated than the surviving crew, though that is not really ever spelled out for us here. And that kind of stands in, in contrast to what you had noted about the frame story. Right. This is this is a really interesting detail of the story. It's clear that at least part of the function of the frame story is to give us the way sailors talk. And to contrast that with the way that Phillips rights to give us a sense of this class distinction. And when Phillips takes over, uh, he's actually a pretty good leader. He knows that he's that the ship just needs an authority figure. There are very few survivors left on the boat and that he kind of just directs the remaining crew in telling them what needs to be done not how to do it. He kind of stays out of their hair. He, he recognizes that in order for him to lead, he can't betray his own ignorance of the functioning of the ship. He has to let the crew assume that by him giving them directions and letting them do it, that he knows just as well as they do what's going on. And I think it's kind of a brilliant touch. And I, and I really like what Hodgson is doing with some of these characters uh, and the way they interact. And, and as I said uh, in the opening section, really the way these different types of intelligence interact with each other. Everybody here has a sense of dignity and purpose, regardless of their class or literacy or anything like that. And I think that that's kind of a really nice touch uh, to the story. I also want to take a moment and just read uh, two short paragraphs about the storm, because I, like you, absolutely loved this sort of uh, peril, this this tension in the storm. But I also think Hodgson here is using some of these great weird fiction tricks to talk about the uncanniness, the real terror and awfulness of the storm. And for those who have read the story or have a copy of it, this is on page 140 of the edition we're reading. The night came, a night of terror, 
with the thunder and hiss of the giant seas in the air above us, and the wind bellowing like some vast elemental beast. Then, just before the dawn, the wind lulled, almost in a moment, the ship rolling and wallowing fearfully, and the water coming aboard, hundreds of tons at a time. Immediately afterwards it caught us again, but more on the beam, and bearing the vessel over onto her side, and this only by the pressure of the element upon the stark hull. And as we came head to wind again, we righted and rode as we had for hours amid a thousand fantastic hills of phosphorescent flame. I mean, this could be a science fiction story or take place on another planet, but it's just this real terror of being in this uncontrollable storm. Uh, I love the writing on display here. Right. Hodgson captures something of the the wildness of our own planet here, which I think is something that we often forget about, you know, certainly in the in the comfort of our, our own homes, you know, in, in Philadelphia. But he really plays it up such that this seascape, as you say, does feel like it might as well be on an, an alien world. And in fact, the whole Sargasso Sea might as well be on an alien world. And we even get the narrator sort of feeling that way from time to time. And, and, and he spends a lot of time musing about how how lost they are, about how far away from home they are, how different this place that they are in now feels from his home, such that he almost can't imagine that it's even the the same world. And I think we have to envision that this is something that Hodgson actually felt from time to time, uh, you know, hopefully not actually in storms quite this bad or, you know, stuck in a mire in the middle of the ocean, but just as a sailor far from home, looking out uh, across uh, this, you know, vastness and feeling alone and also feeling lonely at the the same time. And I, I think that's one of the things I love the most about what Hodgson does is that all of his descriptions are written in this beautiful prose, and they certainly capture the the vividness, right? What it would actually look like to see this scene painted in our mind. But he also captures something of the emotion of the person who's witnessing it. That's not easy to do, and he's a master of it. Yeah, I, like I said, the more I read Hodgson, the more I am just impressed by his writing ability and scope of talent and ability to kind of move between what are now sort of instantiated genres. But for him, he's just writing stories that interest him. And I, and I think he's really, really a, a kind of unsung master of the form. All right. Well, let, let's get back to the, the narrative here. So uh, the survivors do spend a long time trying to get unstuck, but their hopes are are dashed pretty quickly, almost right away. So they've lost sight of this clear water. They've lost sight of the open ocean. And now they are just completely lost in what Phillips describes as a weed-ridden immensity and the cemetery of the ocean, which might also have made an awesome title for this story. But there are also some strange things going on. It's not just that they're lost. It's not just that they're stuck. And first here is that, that Phillips writes that there was a heaving movement among the great weed masses. I saw something waver up aimlessly against the sky. It was sinuous, and it flickered once or twice from side to side, then sank back among the growth. So that's creepy, right? Something is not good here. And then later, when they have realized that it it's Christmas Day, and Phillips is staring out at the sea of weeds under the, the moonlight, there is a disturbance. And at first, it's, it's just a voice. It's a, a voice full of surprise and pain and terror that seems to be coming from too many places. Phillips hears it from above him and then from somewhere beyond the ship somehow. And then it's just gone. And in its place is a rush of feet and the bang of a door closing. And when Phillips follows these last sounds, he discovers that one of the crew has gone missing. 
something has taken Jessup. And and that was the source of the screaming. It was Jessup screaming as this thing was taking him. And then the footfalls that he heard were the, the rest of the crew, the other three guys here running for safety. But there is no time to dwell on this because now there are more sounds out in the night, the, the sounds of something moving stealthily on the deck above them. And the next day they go out under the sun and they investigate now that they can see better. And what they encounter is two immense eyes a little below the surface of the weeds. And Phillips recognizes that this is not actually a, a monster. It's a, a large octopus. But he recognizes what it is. They see this thing too late. And the octopus attacks with half a dozen immense tentacles whirling in the air. And it gets the other two surviving members of the crew. It, it plucks them from the ship and pulls them under the weeds. And that's it. They're gone. And just like that, now suddenly there are only three people left on this ship. There's Phillips, there's the injured captain, and there is the captain's adult daughter. Right. We're introduced to the captain's daughter, you know, a few pages before the reveal of the giant octopus. And at this point in the story, uh, kind of right before Christmas, Hodgson is just stacking tension and conflict. And it works so well here in an already intense story. I mean, you just can't catch your breath in this story. And Hodgson juggles it all very well. You know, he's got the weird, like, thing shifting under the under the weeds and earlier we learned that that a few crew went out to try to row out to uh, investigate this other old ancient ship that they saw and they get taken down and nobody knows why they they pull back a kind of a slack line they sent them out on a boat that was attached to a rope um and so Hodgson is dealing with all this tension and conflict in the story and the unknown. He introduces a new character at this point about halfway through the story, which is a little strange. And that's the captain's daughter. Uh, She hasn't really been mentioned before. And now it seems as though the crew are being hunted by something in the water. And as I said, you really can't catch your breath. But we get this beautiful paragraph around Christmas where one of the crew tries to make Phillips a plum duff, which is disgusting uh, to Phillips. He thinks it's a disgusting piece of food. But it's this great moment where Hodgson grounds the reader in the humanity of what's going on in the adventure story. And it's just some incredible writing. I mean, it's a good reminder. If you're writing adventure stories and action stories, take those moments to let the characters breathe and remind the reader that these aren't just action heroes. They have Christmas traditions and they like plump duff and that creates also mild conflict. Don't also, also don't forget to put conflict in your story, even in those moments. Right. And, and Hodgson really masters this here because we're getting this really profound, quiet character moment. And we get just as much of that as we need for the the themes of the story and to feel for the character. And then that's interrupted by the attack of the monster on the, the main vessel here, which is just brilliant. That is, it's textbook perfect. That's exactly when you should have the action of the story intrude on that character moment should interrupt it. It's just brilliant. I mean, uh, I can't say enough how much of a master Hodgson is of this kind of adventure and uh, action, nautical action story. Yeah, and it was really funny to me, actually, that the that the big monster of this story is a giant octopus. I mean, I guess it's pretty classic 
it's a classic monster for nautical adventure stories. It's like, you know, like 20,000 leagues under the sea and uh, the whole idea of like the Kraken or the giant squid or octopuses in pirate stories. But it was really, it really struck me in reading this story that around this time, like, and, and maybe before, maybe a lot of nautical stories up to this point, I haven't really done a survey of them. Um, these types of creatures are viewed as being like far more ominous and dangerous than sharks. But since Jaws has been made or written, it feels like the squid or octopus are just kind of silly and quaint sea creatures and nothing to be frightened of in the water. And I, and I, it made me wonder that if the sailors and people who were telling these nautical tales to one another uh, were really all that concerned about sharks at all. And what were the conditions under which the tentacled creatures captured so much that was terrifying to the imagination in being out in the water? Right. I think the deal with sharks is that sharks can swim up to the beach and, and get swimmers, right? I think that's I think that's the real concern. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I'm not sure that sailors were ever all that concerned about sharks because, you know, even the biggest shark not actually going to take your ship down. But that's something that we get in all of these uh, these nautical adventure stories from the 18th and 19th century are these these big squids and, and octopuses doing exactly that. Yeah, you're terrified of the thing that can take the ship apart, not the thing that might eat you if you fall off the ship. Because, you know, just don't fall off the ship. Right, right. Yeah, you just walk around on the ship. Just don't, don't go in the water. Yeah, that's that's solid advice. You know, you can tell how much nautical experience we have, I think, by the way we're it's talking fast. about It's fast. It's fast. <laughs> All right. Well, now we are at the end of this story, and Phillips devises a way to protect the, the rest of them from this terrifying octopus by making a kind of rope covering for the deck. And this work takes a, a few months. It takes a long time. And at the end of it, the captain summons Phillips to tell him that he is dying from the injuries he sustained in the storm that drove them here. And the concern that the captain has here is for his daughter. But of course, while all of this has been going on, Phillips and the captain's daughter have been falling in love. And so they will be married by the captain before he dies. And the two of them have a child. They have a, a daughter. And they're going to be able to live together quite happily on this wreck of a ship as if it's their house and it's going to be a good life for them except for the part where there is an expiration date on that happiness because even though they're able to get all of the the water that they require they have no means of acquiring food and phillips has calculated that their supplies are going to run out in 17 years and so this story is in fact a message in a bottle phillips is trying to get help for them, or maybe really only trying to explain to their loved ones in England what has happened to them. And to this end, he has constructed a fire balloon that will carry this letter up into the air and clear of the Sargasso Sea so that people at home, maybe someone out on the sea can read this and help them or at least know what has happened to them. But of course, we know that it never reached anyone until now, and that it's 29 years too late. And that is the end of this story. Yeah, this this story kind of really took a, a strange turn for me at the end. I, I know that there's a part two to the story, but I never saw this story turning into something that turned the horrible event of being attacked by uh, an octopus and, and kind of hunted by an octopus in the Sargasso Sea uh, to being an occasion for Phillips to have a family and a child. And it's really tragic. Everything we learn at the end of the story really reframes the first two paragraphs of Philip's tale. 
you know, I pointed out that the we that Phillips is talking about is his family. It's his wife and his daughter. And, you know, as you pointed out, Glenn, the fact that they have 17 years rations, but it's already been 29 years since the boat was lost, was lost, suggests a really grim fate. Not, not to mention either that the knowledge that Phillips has of the other vessel in the Sargasso Sea, that that vessel's been marooned for like 200 years, means there's probably no hope for them to have escaped. So it really sets up a question for me of what part two is going to be. I did want to point out that why Phillips builds this kind of rope uh, cage almost over the boat is because this was the the ship in the distance, that ancient vessel. Uh, that's what they had done. And he sort of studied that superstructure and understood that it was meant to deter the tentacles slapping down and destroying the ship. And he kind of uh, was bored enough to, to spend six months <laughs> uh, ripping canvas and, and painting it with tar and uh, creating this whole uh, superstructure for himself. And that's a kind of interesting bit of the tale as well. And I wonder if it has to do with the frame story. Well, and this detail suggests to us as well that this octopus, or at least this species of octopus, its family, its ancestors, have been at this business of plucking sailors off of stuck ships also for a century or possibly two centuries and maybe longer, which is in itself a, a terrifying prospect to be thinking that, you know, here we are, uh, if it's 1873 that this ship is is lost, and there's this species of octopus that has discovered that it can live off of human beings that it plucks from these ships uh, that have only possibly been getting into these waters really for the last three and a half centuries. Uh, it's just, it's, it's kind of scary to think of, of octopuses as being, you know, intelligent enough to, to figure that out. There seems like a, a almost calculated intelligent menace behind that once you realize that, that this is not the first time an octopus has done this to a ship. We also get a real sad note here at the end when Phillips is calculating how long the supplies are going to last, where he is thinking about, and this is even before their, their child is born, where he's thinking about what would happen if he killed himself? How long would the supplies last then for his wife and for his child? And we don't know if he did that or not, because this letter is obviously he wrote it while he's still alive, and it's from early on. And to just be left with that thought of what did Phillips decide to do uh, about this question at the end, or when it came down to them starving to death, what were the choices that they had to make? Uh, it's an unwritten story that is grim and, and gruesome and terrifying. And that's the story that Hodgson, I think, maybe picks up in part two uh, from the Tideless Sea. Uh, and, and we'll have to wait to find out if that is the case. Uh, but I definitely know that there are more messages from Phillips included in that story. Uh, but one one thing that really one thing that I think we really have to talk about here by, by way of discussion is the purpose of the frame narrative. Is the frame narrative here meant to serve as a warning? Is it like the X-Files episode, Dodd Calm, which has a kind of really fairly similar structure to this, where you know the letter writing and the discovery of these messages uh, can save people or cure the some you know cure somebody or alert them that they need to take caution if they're headed in this area. You know, why are we telling the story this way? 
with the frame? Why not just start with the manuscript? Well, I think in this case, the, the frame narrative is necessary for us to know that Phillips and his wife and their daughter are definitely dead, that this is a horror story that does not have a happy ending. And the only way to know that is the frame narrative, because if, if we just skip all of that and we just launch into the, the manuscript, there we don't know when the manuscript is being read, because it's just being read by us. So even though he's telling us, hey, we've been here for two years, we've got 17 years of food left, we don't know if this message was ever received by anybody and that they've been rescued or something like that. But with the frame narrative surrounding it, we definitely do. We know that they didn't make it out. And that makes it a horror story. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I, and I think it's a, a kind of elegant way to solve some of the problems that would be inherent in just having the manuscript speak for itself. You know, Hodgson is kind of wanting to crush the hope of the reader here, maybe. Um, <laughs> but I just I don't know if he had to to take the narrative quite in the direction that he did in in order to do so. But I think the another part of the frame narrative is to introduce us to the nautical world and and maybe in part to comment on the way information is is kind of passed about between sailors and boats and and this sort of stuff and finding these stories on the ocean and uh, places to be wary of. I, I really do think that somebody finding this story now has information that other people don't and can spread it uh, by means of communicating, you know, publishing it, doing something that lets people know if they go into the Sargasso Sea or Hodgson's Sargasso Sea, uh, maybe bring a harpoon and maybe pre-superstructure your boat with this uh, with this rope thing <laughs> so you can fend off the octopus and maybe maybe kill it. But nobody wants to be be calmed in this place because there's no way out. But there's especially no way out if you don't have a mast uh, and you have to use your canvas for for uh, building. A tentacle proof cage for your boat. So, uh, yeah, just it's it's a, it's a fascinating way, and I, I think you know frame narratives can sometimes be used when you don't know how to get information into your story that you want to get in there. But in this case, it's used to reinforce the sorts of themes and clean up the plot of the story uh, in a way that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And this this is the right way to use a frame narrative, I think. Yeah, I think it's absolutely well done. And I'm, I'm glad that you pointed out the, the way in which it builds up this world of the sea as a place unto itself with its own type of community, that we don't have any bit of this story taking place on solid land, even though we have it taking place uh, with different groups of people and uh, decades, decades apart. There's no land. It is just this world of the sea. Also, Tentacle Proof Cage. Um, I think that's uh, that's a great band name. So we're going to have to start that band when we're done recording tonight. <laughs> yeah, we're actually going to have to start making a list of all the band names we, we've come up with on this <laughs> podcast. Uh, so I, I want to ask you now, Glenn, wh why do you think Hodgson took the Phillips narrative in the direction? he took it do you find this ending hopeful i mean it's obviously not ultimately in the sense of their fates um but is hodgson saying something about fighting against all odds and deciding to have a family even in the worst of circumstances or do you find this to be a very dark ending uh with phillips condemning his wife and child to the same terrible fate that he has to face i mean how, how do you read this ending here my initial response to this was 
darkness. I mean, I just finished it and said, wow, that's one of the bleakest Christmas stories I've ever read. Thanks, Hodgson. <laughs> but I, I do actually think that it is meant to be more hopeful and optimistic than it actually is, e- even though there is real sadness and and fear in the way that Phillips is, is wrapping up this story. It is also true that he has somehow accidentally wandered into a, a a good life in the sense of having a family around him. And there are no pressures of a human society on them, right? There's, there's no, you know, bad day at work. Uh, you know, there's, there's no road rage. There's none of the things that we have to deal with in our daily lives that, that make us unhappy in ways that, you know, we shouldn't be unhappy because the core of our life is good and that we have a family, we have a community, we have people around us who love us and who we love. And Philip's gets that in a way. And I, I think that Hodgson actually means for that to seem kind of hopeful, kind of optimistic, that even in the aftermath of this devastation, this destruction, this this horrible storm that took people's lives, this monster that took people's lives, something good was actually able to, to come out of that in the form of Phillips finding a family and new life being born into this world of the sea, being being born in this cemetery of the sea, as he describes it. Yeah, I think Hodgson does a really good job of sort of balancing these two readings and offering examples of both. You know they're going to have a very hard road ahead of them. They have 17 years left of rations. But by all accounts, based on the fact that this other ship is stranded there, there's probably no way out. But 17 years is also a long time to to try a bunch of different ways of maybe getting out of there. And this is also maybe the beginning of a great uh, sort of Robinson Crusoe type of story, but it's taking place purely on a boat instead of uh, an island. And another ship could get in there. I mean, there's a million things that could happen in 17 years. And even though it is such a bleak and dark ending, I kind of agree with you that Hodgson is leaning on the optimism angle here a little bit. And then making it clear to us that, no, they probably didn't make it out. It's been 29 years. And so it, he balances this in such a, in such a strange way um, that it, either reading is possible. Yeah, I think it might totally depend on the mood that you're in when when you're reading this story. And I read it after a, a long day at work, so that was that was my mood, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was doing a bit of reading on this story, and I discovered that the Sargasso Sea stories are kind of considered to be uh, maybe among the first examples of uh, weird fiction writer creating a mythos uh, in order to set stories in. You know, a mythos being sort of. Uh, uh, consistent setting, mood, universe that follows consistent rules. The creatures are gods that inhabit that world. And if that's the case, uh, and we do know that Hodgson does return to this setting, I think this is a good opportunity to talk about what mythos is. You know, I just gave some examples um, and what we can learn from it and maybe what other weird fiction, what other weird fiction writers have learned from Hodgson about creating a, a mythos in a weird fiction world. So uh, I just, Glenn, first just want to open it up to comments if you have anything in general to say about a mythos. And then I have a few uh, questions about how it relates to this story. Right. Well, I think that's one of the things that we really love so much about Lovecraft and the Cthulhu mythos is that it feels like a, a shared 
universe in the way that reading all the DC comics titles or all the Marvel comics titles does. They have, you know, similar characteristics there in that you can get characters uh, jumping from story to story. Someone who is a minor character in one story becomes uh, a major character in another story. Artifacts, objects, I mean, especially for Lovecraft, it's its books will will cross from story to story. And then, as you said, we get the the, the gods, the, the kind of supernatural entities uh, that that inhabit all of these stories that are related to each other. And I always think of that as being something that Lovecraft came up with on his own, uh, or at least Lovecraft and his his friends, his his colleagues at Weird Tales, or his uh, other his fellow writers who also were publishing at Weird Tales. Uh, but I, yeah, I had no idea that that Hodgson had done something similar, and that makes me excited to read some more of these Sargasso Sea stories. Yeah, apparently other writers around the publication of these stories started using the Sargasso Sea as a setting, as a setting, and sort of writing in this universe. And we know that this manuscript and other Phillips letters show up in the in the next uh, from the Tideless Sea story, and the Sargasso Sea is a setting where he sets a whole story cycle. So even though we've only read the first. Sargasso Sea story. I, I think it's. I think you know. I kind of want to ask the, a few questions, and maybe we can just start with what. What can we learn about what Hodgson creates here with the with the Sargasso Sea about world building and maybe the coherence of a literary universe in general? Why even create something like this? Well, right off the bat, we see that that one of the things that Hodgson has done is to create a kind of self-contained world, but it's here on our own world. But he's created this really what amounts to a, a fantasy landscape in it that he could do anything with. And he's already planted some of the seeds of it. I mean, for one, he's, by giving us the frame narrative, he allows for the the mechanism by which news of this fantasy landscape could could reach, you know, the real world out, outside of it. But also by by giving us this other 100 or 200 year old derelict, right? He clues us into the fact that there are other stories here, other stories to be told. And we get that in the frame narrative as well, right? When the, the uh, initial captain is, you know, demonstrating that he has this kind of catalog of ships that have been lost at sea. And there's a story for each one of them. And so it's, it's real clear, right? That Hodgson has some of these seeds that he's not necessarily planting, but that they're there, that he can, he can water them, you know, if he wants to. You know, what would you say the value of that is as a writer? Like, what what's the good way to go about that, and what's the wrong way? I mean, I think the one of the things that Hodgson does right here is he keeps really specific to the story. All the elements in this story have a purpose, even though they can be found in other stories. I mean, the classic example of this is, of course, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Ring. The finding of the ring. Uh, by Bilbo in The Hobbit is really significant to uh, Bilbo's function as the thief character in that story and how he can perform that role. And then Tolkien takes that artifact and turns it into a whole nother story with its own histories and own worlds to be explored. But the ring isn't merely dropped into The Hobbit just to create uh, this other story. And I think people who think about writing uh, mythos stories or creating their own mythos or literary universe uh, sometimes too heavily seed early on the universe with things they want to explore rather than telling a specific story and seeing what can grow out of it. And I think that's what Hodgson is doing right here. 
Oh, I agree. Absolutely. I, I don't think he's building a mythos in this story, right? This is one story that he wrote that maybe was commercially successful and so decided he should write uh, a, another one, or he was even perhaps commissioned to, to write another one. Because you're absolutely right that he is tightly focused on telling this story, telling one good story. And you know, I can say certainly from my own writing that that's a huge flaw, a huge problem that I have when I want to world build in such a way that I am planting these seeds or or um, burying nuggets that I can expand on later. Those are always things that have to go in the third draft, though they're also always the things I'm m- most resistant to, to, to cutting, even though they need to to serve the present story. Hudson has done a great job of that here. Right. I mean, we've all read stories and, and maybe written them. I know I know, I have as well, Glenn, where you, you have this paragraph that just doesn't fit because you're thinking about three stories down the road. I mean, I've been editing a story now for a little while where I, I w- was writing two novels away from what this could basically preface, you know, prefatory <laughs> short story is. And I'm like, what am I doing here? Why? It's like, this is not the story. Um, and, and a lot of those sorts of elements still make it into, especially fantasy series today and urban fantasy series in general, where you get just these odd sort of paragraphs or maybe chapters or pages that are about seeding the next books and uh, finding a way to stay focused on telling the story you're telling and organically finding the reason for those seeds to be in the books, I think is a big part of planning uh, a mythos as a writer. Yeah, this just feels like a, a talk that we're having for our future selves that we're going to we're going to get to go back and listen to this episode <laughs> when yeah. we when we need to hear ourselves saying these right. things. Did we actually know that at one point? I mean, that, that'll be the question. We'll ask. <laughs> Um, so the next question I just really want to ask here is, what's the value of returning to a mythos? Say you've say you've successfully told a tight story like The Hobbit or like the uh, From the Tideless Sea, and you realize there's an element in there that can be grown upon, um, or maybe you will just want to return to the setting, like the Sargasso Sea. I mean, what what's the value of returning to something like this, even if it's not commercially successful, just maybe as a writer with a small audience? Well, think about it in terms of commercial success, or not necessarily commercial success, but uh, from the audience perspective anyway, first, which is, I, I think that we all gravitate towards something that is familiar. I think we all love serialized storytelling. Uh, you know, I invoked comic books earlier. Comics is a great example of this, whether it's the actual print universe or it's the cinematic universe. We love these sprawling tales that have this this... Uh, massive cast of, of characters who come and go and whom we're familiar with. We like feeling like there's this other world that is as immense and as real and as lived in as our own. This is something that we're drawn to with comics. It's something we're drawn to with big TV franchises or movie franchises like Star Trek and Star Wars. It's something that draws us to uh, RPG novels as well. It's the the reason I read 32 Dragonlance novels uh, between the ages of 12 and 14 was that this was a massive world I could go live in. So from a reader's perspective, I think that's something that really draws draws us, draws me for sure. From the the writer's standpoint, uh, I think there's something fun about almost the limitation, actually, of having to tell another story in a world that you constructed for an entirely different story, having to work within those constraints, having to work within the um, 
confines of that particular sandbox, but also the way that those constraints or those confines can allow you to explore, you know, different angles on the same the same idea or different different or play with different themes in the same setting, play with different themes in the same in the same mode or storytelling register. I think that's just kind of a fun challenge to give yourself as a, almost a kind of creative writing prompt to get something going when you're stuck. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think it's really fun to think about, uh, you know, if you go back and reread something you wrote in, you didn't necessarily have a planned universe for it or anything like that. But you're like, there's this huge thing I can pick up that I that I left in this story and expand on it. And it's fun to sort of tinker and see where some of these things go and, and maybe even revisit some of your own thoughts your or your older self or or something like that as a as a writer when you're expanding some of these things but um you know I, you know like buffy and angel are, are great examples of these sorts of mythos worlds as well that do both the kind of natural character arcs and the mythos uh iconic arcs like really well and uh naturally and I think it is. I think you're right to say that as as a writer, um, there are real limitations to that. But those limitations can create really beautiful stories if you know what to do with them. Well, this conversation has definitely inspired me to to keep writing. Um, so I think on that note, I think we should we should wrap things up. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the Tideless Sea Part 1. And especially, I think, if you've read more than just this story, if you've read more in the Sargasso Sea stories, we'd love to hear what you think about this as a, as a mythos. And again, just a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters for making this part of my move at least pretty stress-free. Thank you so much for that, guys. Next time, we'll be back with The Festival by H.P. Lovecraft. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.